right, well, welcome to the Young Republicans meeting. Today is October 6th, 2021. Uh, it's about 8.05 p.m. And we're having a discussion tonight with Republican candidate for the 6th District of Oregon, the newly formed 6th District of Oregon. Uh, Angela Plowhead is our guest today. And I grabbed this from straight from her website. So if any of it's wrong, not on me. <laughs> Angela is the first person in her immediate family not to only graduate college with a bachelor's degree, but to go on to earn a doctorate in clinical psychology from George Fox University. Angela believes without the freedoms and opportunities offered by growing up in America, she wouldn't have been able to achieve such heights. Protecting these freedoms to empower all people is the utmost importance to Angela and Oregonians. Angela is a down-to-earth Oregonian, no-nonsense, clinical psychologist, a veteran, a small business owner who has committed her career to serving veterans, seniors, and people with disabilities. She's been married for over, for over 25 years and is a mother of two. And I say that because every political speech, they always talk about, oh, you know, I couldn't do it without my family. So I thought I'd add that in there because I'm sure it's, um, I'm sure it's uh, something that they are feeling also. So I will... Um, let you opine a little bit about your background because it's, um, you know, doing research, you, you realize that it's, it's so varied and it's so, um, it's just, it's really impressive. So I'd, I'd love to hear um, sort of the yellow brick road of how you got to today. Sure. So I, I grew up in Texas. Um, I was very poor. Um, I didn't live in a stick built house until I was almost 12 years old. Um, so for me, you know, life wasn't easy, uh, growing up and when I mean easy, I mean, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't come from an advantaged background. You know, there were times where, you know, food insecurity was something that was very real, um, for me. Um, you know, I remember at one point when I was probably eight or nine, when, I came home and there was literally nothing in the refrigerator. And the only thing that was in the pantry was a can of hominy and a can of pumpkin pie filling. And that was it. So, you know, I know what it's like to, to be poor, but to not ever have lost hope or a feeling that, that I wasn't capable or wasn't able to do something more in my life. Um, from the time I was three years old, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. Um, that changed a little bit as to what type of doctor I wanted to be, but that didn't change the idea that there were things in life that I wanted to accomplish and that I was very capable of doing them. And, you know, even if there were other people in my sphere of influence, uh, teachers, um, you know, in fourth grade, I had a teacher who would throw my homework assignments away and say I didn't complete them, um, things like that. It, it, it didn't impact who I felt I could be or the things I felt I could do in life. And so when um, that idea of who I wanted to be got challenged a little bit when I first went to college um, and, and what had happened was that my my roommate's parents who were uh, a medical doctor and a nurse didn't know anything about her life, but I knew I wanted to have a family. And so that challenged me a little bit in what, what road I wanted to go down, um, to become a doctor. And so while I figured that out, um, 
and changed majors a few times. Um, I really had to do a lot of searching and I felt led to join the military. Um, prior to that time, I had never had an interest in joining the military. And so um, can you guys hear me? Cause it froze on my end. Yeah, we gotcha. Okay. Um, so that ended up leading me to a very um, interesting four years in my life. So I joined the military, um, was assigned to be an intelligence analyst, and um, met my husband six weeks after I joined, and we married very quickly after that. Um, and so that definitely gave me a, a different view into the world and into what happens outside of our nation and outside of freedom. You know, it gave me a, a view into the, into the world of people that are living in communist countries and what it is that their life looks like. And so when It was really frightening to me that people were willing to accept that when we have known nothing but freedom in our nation. And to see that people were so willing to say, you know, yeah, let's bring in socialism. Yeah, let's bring in communism. That's okay. And not only is it okay, but it's a good thing. And I was like, are you out of your mind? It's not a good thing at all. Like, these are the scary things that um, I witnessed in people that you know, went from having a good quality of life to then having no quality of life at all, where, you know, you had to struggle to, to find food. You had to really had to get good at being extremely resourceful because you went from being what used to be a middle class to now being in the lowest class, because there are only two in that type of society. You have the, the, the elites and you have the people that have nothing. There's really no in-between. And that, our nation who has known such prosperity because of the constitutional freedoms that we have being not only okay with, but willingly seeking and trying to bring that into our nation was something that I'm not willing to accept. I'm not willing to accept it for me and I'm not willing to accept it for, you know, my children or my children's children. And so that's why I decided to step up and say, no, no, this isn't what we want here in our nation. And I don't, most of the people I know, even the people um, that I know that are extremely liberal, they don't want that. But for some reason, they're not seeing that that's the eventual outcome. So okay. I'm hoping to step in that gap. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that was kind of my, um, uh, my second question is, you know, why this and why now? Because, you know, you were college to the military to, um, and you're also a clinical psychologist. And so, uh, you know, I guess, was there a catalyst? Um, was there a moment where you're like, I cannot believe this is happening. Like I need to, someone needs to do something and why not me? So, you know, watching the riots and, you know, watching Portland literally and figuratively burn um, and to see that our elected officials weren't willing to stop it, that they were willing to allow um, such blatant criminal activity and not prevent harm to the business owners, 
um, and not to, and to have such hypocrisy in how they were willing to enforce their, um, their restrictions that they put in place for safety, right? So it's okay to um, close down our businesses and close down how our state and our nation is functioning, but it's still okay, even though everything else is closed, for you to go out into the streets in, in huge mobs and destroy our capital, or not our capital, but our city hall, or our, um, you know, to, to bomb um, police cars and to attack citizens and police officers. Um, that to me was the catalyst to say that things are really upside down right now and we need to right this ship. Gotcha. Yeah, it's uh, it's been crazy what we've been witnessing too, and we kind of have a front row seat to it. Um, so, as you're, um, you know, you're not explicitly um, the sixth district, not explicitly in Portland. It, it sort of gets to Tigard and Beaverton, and uh, kind of the outline areas. But what um, what are your thoughts on the newly formed district? Um, do you think it's um, beneficial? Do you think it's helpful? Um, you think it's a hindrance to, um, to you know, the Republican uh, side? Um, I think I think I know what you're asking, um, but let me just clarify. So, do I think it's going to be a, a hindrance to a more conservative agenda being put into place? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so. I don't, I really, I have a lot of hope for this district. Um, you know, I see, and not just for this district, I think that we can legitimately take at least two, if not three of these new seats, uh, not new seats, well, they're all kind of new, right? Cause they've all been redrawn. Um, I, I think that Democrats have overplayed their hand, really. Um, I think there are a lot more people in this state that have um, a much more conservative leaning um, idea of who America is and what it is that they wanna see out of our nation than where the, the liberals and the Democratic Party have taken it. I think a lot of people, what I'm hearing a lot of people say is my party has left me. And so, you know, there's, I think a really good chance that if we can get our message in a, a really effective way to the non-affiliated and the independents, then I think we can take a lot, a large portion of those votes. Yeah, um, my last question, and I, I wanted to save it for the end because it's sort of like an outro, but I literally wrote, what is your message and how do you get it out to disaffected Democrats and non-affiliated voters? <laughs> so yeah, what, what would you, like, how do you, um, what, what do you say to them? Like you said, uh, you feel, and something I say is I think everyone is more conservative than they know, but um, how do you make that case? So, you know, I think Portland is a really good example. And I keep going back to Portland because Portland, I think, is a microcosm of 
of what's happening in the rest of our nation. But I think it's also something that we've seen, we saw here in our state, right? So we saw when those riots were happening that it started to kind of spread out to other urban areas, which because of the leadership they had there, um, like we saw it here in Salem, I know it was happening in Hillsborough and other places, you know, other um, uh, metro areas. And so those places had enough common sense really to say, okay, we're not going to allow people to go around destroying our city and we're going to do something about it, right? Um, so they were able to stop it and keep it from spreading further into lasting longer. Um, but if we look at Portland, Portland has taken a nosedive in the last five years. And do we really want what we see in Portland to happen to the rest of our state? I would say no, because so many people have left Portland. Um, Portlanders that have been there for a long time that have watched, you know, that have seen how bad the homelessness is, which homelessness is bad, you know, across our state. But they've started to move out. You know, we saw Portland five years ago from the go from the third most desirable city to um, as far as a real estate market to the 66th. That's huge. That's a huge jump. Um, and we've seen it go from a place of business from the 21st to the 35th out of um, 50 states. So as far as Oregon is concerned, so we're moving backwards in a lot of these areas. And if we don't have industry, then we can't survive like as a state, what happens to our revenue? How do we support all of these programs that people want to see put into place? It doesn't matter what your, um, whether you have a D or an R next to your name. Um, if there's any program you'd like to see happen, we have to have revenue to make it happen. And we can't do yeah. that if we don't have industry. And if people, if, in, if businesses leave because we're so unfriendly towards them, or you know, we keep making really bad choices about policies um, as far as our, our natural resource protection, and we keep having additional uh, fires that you know, are costing um, loss of agriculture, which agriculture is a $4 billion industry here in Oregon. It's a quarter of our revenue. And so if we don't protect um, agriculture by having better um, policies in place, that reduce um, the risk of forest fires. Um, and that's just one piece of it, right? I mean, like there's all other kinds of issues with water, water use and land domain and all of, a lot of some other things as well that we're seeing policies around. Um, but if we don't protect that industry, then we don't have money. And if we don't have money, we don't have programs. Yeah, I mean, just uh, like you talked about a microcosm of that is what's happened to the timber industry. Exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, we have the Portland Timbers, but I mean, we don't log as much as we used to. And I, I think it, it goes hand in hand with the fires. It's like if you don't thin out the forest, then, you know, and we have so much of it federally protected that it, you just you can't touch it. And it's literally just gasoline waiting to be sparked. Um, exactly. Well, and then if you're because they've burned up so many of the, the national forest roads, you can't get in there to fight fires. Yeah. And so, and you don't clean up the underbrush, you don't thin the forest like you're talking about, you don't have the fire breaks. So these are all things that we used to have in place that, and we weren't seeing the same kind of fires that we're seeing now. You know, right now, our, we have our senators that are proposing um, a policy that is going to make our um, water 
uh, restrictions on, on the east side of the, the Cascades even worse. And so, you know, we can't keep promoting and, and it really doesn't matter what district you're from. If, if you're voting for a House congressional member or you're voting for a senator and they're, they're still representing you, um, you know, they're, they represent all of Oregon. They represent all of America when they're there in Washington, right? So every single one of those votes count. So we can't just think in these really siloed ways of, well, this person just represents my district. We have to think these people are representing all of the Oregon and they're representing all of America when they're with their votes. And so- yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, that's okay. Um, and so I was actually going to touch on, because, because this is a federal uh, candidate, it's not, um, just specific to Oregon. So, um, and, and we touched on sort of the riots down in Portland, but we also have another crisis. Um, and even in parts of your district, like Salem, you mentioned, um, but also, um, across the country, we were seeing drug abuse and mental health issues, mm -hmm. um, and organs almost consistently last in, in, um, well, mental health issues. But now I would assume we're sort of near the top per capita of drug issues because it's legal. Um, so, so those issues are being ignored in the name of compassion. So as a, as a behavioral health professional, how do you see that issue and what, um, what sort of lens can you bring to, to those um, issues? So, you know, I think part of that has to do with what we're doing with kids. So youth in Oregon have twice the rate of depression as adults in Oregon. And we already know, like you just stated, that um, that mental health prevalence and um, access to care were, were last in the nation for those things. Um, so I think we need to start by addressing those issues um, earlier. I think we need to, and, and for suicidality, those rates are also pretty high. Um, we're towards the lower third in the nation um, for suicide rates. So we need to address those issues when children, when people are younger. Um, so that way, as they get older, they know how to cope. They know how to manage with life. Um, but I think we also need to stop doing things um, like teach. Like, and I think the, the issues that we have with the indoctrination in schools are contributing to a lot of the depression that we're having. Um, children, we're putting a lot of pressure on really young kids to question things that before were always just sort of accepted. And with that, we've seen the prevalence rates of those issues go up. Um, and we also, along with that, have seen issues with suicide and issues with depression and anxiety go up. So, um, you know, if you have a five-year-old worried about their carbon footprint um, or worried about whether or not they're male or female, you know, that's a lot more pressure on a five-year-old than they really need to have. You know, when they're really just trying to learn their ABCs and learn how to, you know, count. I mean, in kindergarten, you know, they should be learning how to count to 100, not having to figure out, am I a boy or a girl? Um, so I think it starts there, but it's an issue all throughout. So we need access to care is uh, one issue. So um, part of that can come by um, addressing the number or not the number necessarily, but the types of providers that are allowed um, to be paneled with Medicare. So at, at this point, we have three levels of providers that are allowed to be uh, paneled with Medicare. You have psychologists, 
social workers and psychiatrists. But if you have a um, marriage and family therapy um, degree, or if you're a, a licensed professional counselor, you can't receive that or you can't accept that type of insurance. Um, but we have a pretty high percentage of people that are on um, Medicare. So I think we can, those are really simple changes that I think would have huge impacts in the accessibility to care. And, you know, I have a practice. Um, we don't have enough providers to be able to um, accept everyone that calls us. It would be great if we could, but we just don't. Um, and there's so, there's so much need. So um, doing things like um, peer supports, those are things that could happen in schools. There are also things that could be happening, um, you know, on college campuses. There are things that could be happening in businesses. Um, there already are um, really uh, well-validated studies in peer supports and how well they work. Um, there are um, counties that do some of that, but they're not well-funded programs and they're not programs that um, have a lot of I don't think a lot of people know about them. So they might actually have the, the resources there to step in where other, other services aren't. And so and that's our, not something that would cost a lot of money. Um, it's not something that would take from something else, but just letting those services be known and getting out that information to um, people that would be referring, like letting school counselors know. Yeah, I was actually uh, just gonna, uh, you're talking about sort of like an AA model. Um, it's not, it, it's not necessarily like an AA model, but I guess it's, it's similar to that. Um, so you're not necessarily taking someone who's, I guess, in that framework, you would say recovered from depression, but you're taking people that have um, a lower level of uh, training or education and letting them help people that have lower and, and a lower acuity of need. So they're not necessarily setting with the person that's suicidal, but they're setting with the person who maybe um, has some issues with anxiety um, that are causing problems for them. And so those are the types of people that they can, they have a manualized program that they use. Um, and if there's a need for a higher level of service, then they can refer. Okay. And um, so aside from, um, I know Medi like Medicare obviously is a federally federal program, but how do you, um, I mean, how, so how do we, um, I mean, I, it sounds like those types of support groups, they, I mean, one of the great things about AA is it's free and you don't really, there's no cost and it doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, so, but from a, from sort of a legend, like if you were queen for a day, like what would, what would be your way to help uh, to do mental health and, um, you know, whether it's cost effective or not, I guess is a different issue, but, um, would you mandate treatment for people? Would you, uh, I mean, because that's one thing, obviously like the ACLU is like, Oh, you can't take these people and hospitalize them against their will. But some people are like, well, they can't take care of themselves. And they're sort of a drain on, you know, and they're, they're, uh, injuring themselves essentially, you know, out on the street mm -hmm. and exposure. And so, so I, I just think it, that it's one issue that I, I sort of waffle back and forth on is like, do we mandate treatment? Is that even okay as a conservative? You know what I mean? Like, 
Well, I don't, you, can't really, you can't really mandate mental health care. Um, so in order to benefit from treatment, you have to be engaged with it. You have to be bought into it. So, um, you know, there's no magic wand when it comes to mental health. Um, someone has to want, they have to want it. They have to want to get better um, because there's just things they have to do in order to, to get there. Um, you know, you see the same thing with substance abuse. Um, you know, they used to do a whole lot of court mandated substance abuse treatment. Um, and we do, we still do some of it with like DUIs. Um, but if someone doesn't want to have a change in their life, they're not going to make it. And, and that's just the reality of, of what happens with mental health care. You know, the mental health care provider isn't a silver bullet, they're a facilitator. Okay. So, and with, um, uh, you know, some of the issues we brought up today, if there was like a top three uh, that you are most passionate about, um, either, um, you know, staying as it is, or uh, something that you're very passionate about wanting to see changed um, at the federal level, or, or at least um, things that you see here in Oregon that you like to have different. So I think one of one thing that I'm extremely passionate about is, um, and this probably has to do with my intelligence background, is um, our national security. So we just saw our president hand over intelligence data to our enemy. Um, we're seeing on, you know, with the open borders that we have, we're seeing things like you mentioned crime earlier and, and drugs, you know, um, I've been speaking with sheriffs that are saying, you know, prior to January, we didn't have a problem in our community with meth, with, with meth anymore. But now we're seeing issues with meth um, just get exponentially worse. Um, we already had a problem with opioids and um, overdose and deaths because of opioids prior to January. Um, now we're seeing, you know, in the last 10 months that has gotten extremely bad. Um, and not only do those issues with drugs um, that are occurring cause harm to the individual, they're causing harm in our communities. Um, you know, we're seeing things, um, activity from Mexican cartels and um, Russian mafia and Chinese mafia in communities that never saw those things before. And so um, we're seeing a lot of crime related to those issues that have to do with the open borders that we have. So if we know who's coming into our country, we know what they're doing here and we know where they're at and when they leave um, and we know what they're bringing in, then it's, that's one piece of it. Um, the other piece of that is that um, I think we're gonna have a lot of work to do to overcome the intelligence leaks and not just leaks, but just outright um, breaches that we've had um, from our administration. And um, I would like to know um, who in our military was supporting those decisions to essentially out our personnel that were in Afghanistan. Yeah, it's, re it's really sad. And I, you know, I often wonder like how, 
there, I, I feel like there are staples of someone's life or, or a society that should never be touched by politics. Mm-hmm. Military is one of them, uh, you know, a doctor, uh, um, a, a faith, uh, you know, your church. Um, but I don't understand how the, and this is, I, I guess, a question I, I hadn't thought of, but um, given your military background, what is happening with our military and why, why do they feel like political appointees rather than, um, you know, people who, you know, like, seems like they're on one team or the other. You know, and we used to never see that, but we are seeing that in the last few years. And I think it's a question that the military really needs to take a look at and start censoring people. Um, you know, when you have generals say that, you know, I, I didn't question, I don't, it's not my job to question an order. As a young airman, I was taught that you do need to question orders because you're responsible for what you carry out. So if you carry out an unlawful order, it's still unlawful, even if you were told to do it. So that we have people at the highest levels of our military saying that they're not going to question an order and whether or not it's lawful. To me, um, that's when you get into issues of treason. Um, And so I think we need to really reevaluate. The military needs to really reevaluate who the leaders are and why those leaders are there. Um, You know, you asked about what else I'm passionate about. You know, I I started to talk about, you know, the criminal elements that have happened with our open borders. The other pieces of that are human trafficking, um, which is a huge industry for all of these, um, these criminal elements. And we are seeing that increase in our communities here in Oregon. So there was a bust down in Josephine County where there were 130 people found in human slavery. And I think we need to start using that word because that's what it is. It's slavery. It's modern day slavery. And if we are concerned about equity and we're concerned about human life, then we need to take a stand and not allow human slavery to happen anywhere in our nation. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. So. Two more things. Uh, one is um, you're running in a primary. How do you uh, differentiate? I mean, this is a, a little ways out, but how do you dif- uh, differentiate yourself from other Republican candidates? So, you know, um, like you mentioned earlier, I have a lot of varied lived experiences. Um, you know, so far, I'm the only veteran who's running. Um, I have a doctorate. I'm a very educated or highly educated woman. Um, And I have shown a commitment to this nation and to our state. Um, I've also, you know, proven to be an effective and a a dedicated advocate um, over a lot of years for um, people that are underserved. So, you know, I think you know, with all of that in combination, I think there will be many experiences that I have that most candidates will not have that they can offer to the people of Oregon. Okay. And, um, uh, well, one thing I just thought of it, you know, if you are elected, um, Mm -hmm. Washington is sort of, I mean, at least from, 
from our side, I feel like is sort of a dirty place and it, you know, there's not much, uh, there's not much friendship and, and ally building. It's, it's more of like, who can the whip get to, to have this vote and you got to stay on our side. And, um, how do you feel about sort of the, that, that, uh, boy, I guess that just that they have, it has such a bad reputation, I guess. How do you, how do you feel like you can go and sort of, uh, make allies with, um, with people? You know, throughout my life, I've had a lot of practice in learning how to, um, get along with people, even if I don't agree with them. Um, you know, growing up looking like I did, you know, I didn't see another person that looked like me until I was 24 years old. And so there weren't a lot of communities that just I fit into and accept and was accepted by without doing a lot of work. And so, um, you know, I think we have to learn to stay unoffended. Um, most people out there aren't necessarily (laughs) trying to harm us. Um, they might say or do things, but if we get offended, then we're for sure not going to be able to, to communicate with them and be able to walk alongside them. And the reality is, you know, we're all Americans, um, we're all here for the for this nation, and so um, I'm. You still have to have integrity. You still have to, you know, be solid in your beliefs. And I think having um, really solid beliefs that you're committed to, so not being taken away from those, but still being able to get along with people um, and not um, resorting to some of the, you know, the name calling and, and all of that kind of stuff, I think um, are, are really important things. And I think by just staying unoffended and, you know, approaching people with the love of Christ is uh, still a winning combination. Yeah, that's great. And uh, last thing. So um, I'm guessing you're, you got some really good walking shoes and you're going to be uh, knocking on some doors what's your, what's your 30, uh, 30 second, 60 second, uh, speech to, to just, uh, sort of be an inviting presence and, and let people know mm-hmm. how you stand and, and what you're about. Yeah. So our constitutional freedoms are paramount to us making this country the greatest thing that it can be. And it's been a document that has, um, lasted the, the test of time and that has, helped us to have prosperity and not just for a certain type of person, but for all people. And so if we want to have all people to have opportunity and to um, succeed in our nation, then we have to protect it. Great. Well, hey, I'm going to turn it over to Lauren. She's going to handle the audience questions. It looks like we have a couple. So uh, Lauren, take it away. Thanks. Yeah, we do have a couple. So I'll just get right into it. So um, what's your stance on Puerto Rico statehood? You know, it's a really complex question. Um, And there are a lot of factors that go into that. You know, um, in the military, I certainly served alongside um, a number of people that were from Puerto Rico. Um, In my personal life, I have... um, friends that are family to me that are from Puerto Rico. Um, So 
I know the people of Puerto Rico are mixed on, on, on this question as well. And so, you know, there is a, I don't have a good answer to, to where I stand on it. I don't feel like I have, um, a good yes or no to it. I think it's a really complex question. Puerto Rico has a lot of needs. Um, they're certainly um, a, an important part of um, of America um, from from where they stand. Um, but also, you know, being pretty independent in who they are, and so. It's a complex question. I don't know that I have a good answer for that one at this point. The next question is, um, if you could accomplish just one thing when you get to Washington, what would it be? And I did see Alex's question that, that they voted yes for statehood <laughs> three times. Yes, they have. Um, there's also been, I, I think, a, a lot of, pretty complex questions though, as far as um, what do they offer um, to the United States and what do we offer to them? And how do we do that without changing who they are? Um, and, and so, like I said, I think it's, it's, it's a really complex issue. Um, and so before I would vote on something like that, I think I would wanna talk with um, my constituents about their feelings on it and what they would wanna see happen. She's a politician already. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I think that's true, right? Like, it's true. We, we, we want to represent the people that have put us there. Um, but we also want to be fair um, and make sure that we're sticking to our values. And so um, I don't know that there's necessarily, um, like I said, a good answer to that right now. Sorry, Lauren, I just wanted to say real quick. And another thing that you talk about being unoffended, one thing that mm -hmm. um, our society is great at now is uh, impulse and jumping at um, jumping at conclusions and, and I need to be right on this issue right now. So I, I actually respect that you're like, mm, I, I may need to learn a little more. To not. So yeah. yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. So what is your position on our intervention in the Middle East? As far as what we've done or what? Um, um, yeah, what we've done and then pulling troops out of Afghanistan. So I don't think anyone can look at Afghanistan and say that that was a success and how that was handled. Um, I think most of the country wanted us to come out of Afghanistan. How it happened was truly tragic. And I think we're gonna have repercussions from that for years to come. You know, I've mentioned in a few different places that, um, you know, one primary concern I have for that is um, our, our national security um, because of how that happened. Um, so absolutely, I think that was handled in a very inappropriate way and could have been handled much better. Um, do we need a presence in the Middle East? I think we absolutely need a presence in the Middle East. Our country became safer because we had a presence in the Middle East. Um, 
that has happened throughout our history. Every war we fought um, internationally has been one where we have kept a presence somewhere and that presence there has kept us safe. Um, you know, Korea, Japan, uh, Germany, um, you know, pretty much everywhere where we have fought a war, we have had continued to have a presence there. Um, it didn't necessarily have to be adversarial. I mean, look at all, well, South Korea anyway, you know, all of those people are now allies with us. Um, so I think there's ways that we can maintain a presence in the Middle East and um, continue to protect our national security in a way that is um, good for America and good for the people that we're allies with. Yeah. And hopefully and that got to the, the heart of that question. If not, let me know. I'm yeah, I'm sure um, if there's a follow-up, oh, it did, okay, cool. So um, another question is, if you could accomplish just one thing when you get to Washington, what would it be? To go through every bill that has occurred in the last two decades that has taken away um, individual rights and states' rights and um, revisit those with a, a different Congress. I think we need to absolutely get back the freedoms we've lost. Yeah, for sure. And so um, one thing a lot of GOP voters question is election integrity. How do you approach that with voters in need? Sorry, I'm just reading the question again. So, you know, there are a lot of people out there that have a lot of theories on how we um, protect our, um, our elections that are a lot smarter and, and much more knowledgeable about that issue than I am. And I'm always wanting to learn from people that have that knowledge and experience. Um, but what I think we can't do is just give up we can't just stop voting. And I hear people saying, well, my vote isn't going to count anyway. And that's how we got into the position we're in in Oregon, right? Because people saying my vote isn't going to count anyway, and they just stop voting. And so we have to make sure that people still engage, you know, regardless of what happens with our voting system, um, we have to keep people engaged. They have to know that what we do is gonna matter and we do see it happening. You know, we see it happening in small communities and we see it happening in bigger ones. You know, we've seen um, seats flip, you know, even in this last election, we saw um, seats in, in our house flip um, where there weren't, and, we, and the Senate. So, you know, we're seeing it happen on every level. So, we can't just give up. We can't stop fighting. You know, I'm also hearing people say, you know, I've had this and this neighbor, I've had this family member, you know, just leave, you know, just pack up and leave Oregon because they feel like it, there's no hope. And my message is there absolutely is hope and we can win this state back. Yeah. And um, one thing I wanted to ask is um, why did you decide to run for a, for this seat? for a district seat, um, why not try something smaller just to dip your toes into politics? Yeah, so, you know, I've been around politics for a long time. Um, I've been an advocate for seniors and people with disabilities since 2014 um, and advocating with um, lawmakers both in Oregon, um, 
within certain communities, as well as um, at the state level, as well as federally. So even though I've not run for public office, I've been around um, politics for a long time and been involved in it from an advocacy standpoint. And so um, that's part of the answer. The other answer is that this is where I felt led to be. Yeah. All right. So that's all the questions we have. Is there any last thoughts or um, comments you want to say before we wrap up this interview? You know, I'm really encouraged that so many young people are getting involved. I was in love with politics when I was, um, you know, in college. And for me, it wasn't something that I, I stopped loving. It was something that my life just took me in a different direction. Um, and so um, when I became a psychologist, um, I, didn't, I didn't stop caring about policy or stop caring about um, what was happening in my community or in my country. And so um, I'm really encouraged that there's so many young people that have such good common sense and are able to um, recognize and that some of the education that they've seen really was indoctrination and not necessarily truth and um, are willing to, to take a stand and to um, get out there and help other people recognize that too. So thank you guys. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Young Republicans of Oregon podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Rumble. Please consider donating by visiting our website, youngrepublicansoforegon.org. The donations will pay for political trainings for our volunteers, travel expenses so we can spread our message across the U.S., and better tech equipment.